welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Peter Beinart. Peter is a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times, editor at large for Jewish Currents, and recently started a newsletter on Substack called The Beinart Notebook that people can subscribe to for free. Peter, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. You wrote a recent New York Times piece about the concept of global leadership in U.S. foreign policy. Leadership is one of those empty words that sounds platitudinous and inherently wholesome, but it's actually a kind of colloquialism that refers to an actual strategy. So what do people tend to mean when they talk about U.S. global leadership in the world? Well, Joe Biden has defined it as the U.S. being at the head of the table, which I think he means essentially that the United States is responsible for kind of setting out the rules of the international order. And I suggest in my piece that there are some problems with that vision. First of all, that America probably doesn't have the the level of power necessary to do that. And secondly, that we need to think harder about whether we have earned the right to do that. Okay. Speaking of rights, we tend to go around and establish our own leadership and our own rules, but then kind of deny others the wiggle room around those rules. Uh, You talked a a little bit about that in your piece as well. Right. Uh, The United States is very fond of saying that its adversaries, China or Russia or, or whoever, are violating something that often gets called, uh, you know, the kind of liberal international rules-based order, some combination of those words. And it's not that we're wrong when we when we point out those violations, not that they're wrong, that there are problems with them. But I think what bothers me is the lack of self-consciousness in kind of establishment foreign policy discourse, including among Democrats, as well as Republicans, about the degree to which the United States routinely violates those, kind of makes exceptions for itself and approaches the world with a kind of a moralism and self-righteousness, a kind of position of kind of assumed virtue that I think even before Donald Trump was um, something that deserved a lot more skepticism. And now after Donald Trump really is almost absurd when you think about how much of a global wrecking ball for a notion of international rules the United States has been over the last four years. And you argued in that piece that the Biden administration should abandon uh, this approach of insisting on uh, the U.S. as the global leader. Explain why we need to get away from that approach and then also talk about what are the alternatives on offer. So the reason I think we should get away from it it is, is that it doesn't reflect the magnitude of the shifts in global power that have taken place. The United States was 50% of the world's GDP in 1945. Uh, It was around 25% at the end of the Cold War. It's now around 15%. And the gap between the United States and China in terms of raw economic power is likely to grow. We're in second. Secondly, it reflects reflects the sum of our self-conceptions as guarantors of rules in the international system rather than the actual sum of our actions. So what I would prefer is that the United States... Um, is a partner in global efforts, important global efforts on on climate change, on nuclear proliferation, on on pandemics and global public health, but that we focus more, we focus less on making the rules and more on abiding by them. And we focus more on our ability to do harm uh, rather than assuming, as I think American leadership does, that essentially America's efforts in the world are always on the side of the angels. 
You posted a piece on Substack uh, following up your New York Times piece with an explanation of how you came to hold a lot of these opinions about international relations and U.S. foreign policy. Uh, you say your mind had been changed and the pivotal event of the Iraq war was really the impetus to this reevaluation. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I think I, like others of my generation, not all certainly, but but like some others, was very influenced in my kind of early adulthood by a set of experiences that I think began with America's victory in the Cold War, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and then followed that by with the Iraq, the Gulf War, sorry, in 1991, and America's military interventions in Bosnia and Kosovo in 1995 and 1999, which I think led, there's actually interesting political science research shows that people are particularly inf influenced by world events that happen basically between the ages of 18 and 25, when you're kind of in, kind of, you've kind of left your family of origin, but you have not, but you're still in this transitional moment in your life. That's when people tend to change brands of toothpaste, change religions, change political ideologies. And um, for me, that was a sense, uh, a set of experiences. I was already, you know, I think fused with my patriotism that came of being, a, a you know, the first first generation of my family born in the United States, to, to, to feel that American, to have a view of American power that I think in, in retrospect was naive, both naive in terms of the efficacy of American military force in particular, but also in terms of the, the kind of the, the wisdom and virtue that America could bring um, th uh, in coercive ways to other places. Uh, it was a moment of a lot of optimism about the spread of democracy, the kind of supposed third wave of democracy that spread through the world in the 1990s, a lot of optimism about the American economic model. And after the Iraq war, which was a disastrous experience for the country, also a difficult experience for me. I didn't serve in, in uniform, of course, but I did know people who suffered uh, a lot from that war, um, that I, um, I had to reconstitute the way I saw the world or else I wasn't going to be able to continue to write about these issues at all. You write, quote, when you live in close proximity to politicians and government officials, there's a greater incentive to tailor your views to what's politically palatable. That seems to me a reference to another rather new concept of salience in U.S. foreign policy, and, and that's this, uh, this notion of the blob. Uh, a kind of unmoving, tightly knit group of uh, foreign policy professionals in D.C. that help create a continuity in U.S. foreign policy despite changing administrations and changing parties. So, I mean, a lot of folks in the D.C. policy space, I think, take great offense to this argument that just being here and mingling within this professional and political environment actually influences their views. But actually, this is a pretty well-known phenomenon I think, uh, in psychology. Talk about why you think just being in the D.C. bubble has a way of framing one's policy views. I mean, I think there are, there are, there are a whole number of things at work here. First of all, if you want to be involved in, in foreign policy and, and, and be at proximity to power and have an influence, um, you have to recognize what the, the market is in terms of what politicians um, are interested in hearing and what they're not interested in hearing. And, and this is inevitable to some degree, right? I mean, it's, it's you know, to some degree, one has to recognize that people who have the most jaundiced view of America's, let's say, imperial power are going to have a hard time advising it, right? 
Um, and, and so, um, so, so first of all, there's a natural tendency to believe the best about American power um, when you're in the business of trying to shape it. But also, um, and I think this, I don't know what it's like so much in the Republican Party, but my experience, and it's been a while now, but my experience when I was more involved in conversations, which included politicians and people at think tanks and other places, was that there di- was not often a clear dis- kind of separation between what was the right policy and what was the politically possible policy. That there was almost, the, the two were almost from the very beginning of conversations I often noticed blended together, where, where you were discussing the two in an intertwined fashion in which your very ability to ask the question, what's the right thing to do? What's the wise policy? Was deeply interwoven with the question of, can we sell this? How will the American people react? How will other forces in Washington react? Again, maybe that's inevitable, but I found that tended to shut, um, to limit the, 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 the array of different thoughts that people had or different alternatives that they might have and to produce a kind of a conversation that often seemed like it was playing within the 40 yard lines. And it was frustrating to me. I I wish that people had at least been willing to think more iconoclastically and radically and then maybe realize that there were limitations on the degree those things could be could be brought to bear. Um, But but I felt there was often a kind of self-censoring that happened before that that was even articulated. And uh, I also think it's important to, you know, to acknowledge that um, who one works for and who pays the bills uh, has an influence, that um, people in universities are certainly not immune from all kinds of social and other kinds of pressures. But uh, people in think tanks, I think, um, do not have as much academic freedom as people at universities do overall. And it's tricky because I don't want to kind of make a vulgar Marxist case that basically if you work at a think tank that gets money from defense contractors, therefore you're simply going to say whatever those defense contractors want. I mean, I think people do have a sense of pride and professionalism in their work and and can produce very valuable things. But although I don't, although on the one hand, it's not fair to say that people are simply conduits for the, the corporate interests that fund their institutions, it, it seems to me it is legitimate to mention the fact that they work at institutions that get funding. Um, and actually, it's surprising the degree to which in me, in the media, that's uh, people's opinions are often expressed with no reference to that whatsoever. The reader would simply or viewer would simply never know. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, another way to I've heard this uh, talked about in a different way to my former colleagues wrote about something called the operational mindset in think tanks, which is um, since the politics kind of set the parameters for debate on foreign policy, wonks and, and policy folks spend their time talking about and analyzing how best to achieve the set of objectives that policymakers want, as opposed to questioning and scrutinizing the presumptions behind those uh, things. Yes. And I think the other thing which is really important is that um, which makes foreign policy debates something different than domestic policy debates is we do not have a very big push from um, the from the public, from organized activists out there in the country in the way that we saw uh, over the summer, for instance, on the issue of, of race and policing, or as we've seen on the issue of climate, that that can force politicians and elites to respond. 
um, because of the power of an organized movement. Bernie Sanders was able to mobilize that on domestic policy um, and on climate, which obviously straddles domestic and foreign policy. But when he went to create these unity task forces with Joe Biden after the primary, they didn't create one on foreign policy. And so I think that you can see a Biden administration that's able to pursue foreign policy in a much more insulated way from the base of the Democratic Party than it is on domestic policy. And I think that's true for people in think tanks and other advisors too. There's also something else going on here, right? Because it's not just that the political consensus on U.S. foreign policy kind of uh, regulates a supportive uh, foreign policy professional community in D.C. that that uh, doesn't go beyond those parameters. It's also that sometimes this group kind of fights back against politicians that might say things not in keeping with American leadership. And so, you know, there's this myth that's kind of developed among some uh, particularly willing believers um, that Trump was kind of a restraint-oriented president. And the big problem was the adults in the room and uh, occasionally Congress fighting against his. And the problem was, of course, that these impulses to occasionally, say, withdraw from Syria or draw down troops from Germany or uh, whatever, uh, usually are done in a very slapshod way that prevents the kind of policy process needed to get things done. And so there's resistance like that. But, but, but it's also the case that, you know, some of the most vociferous dissents from Trump, whether in the Republican Party or in his own administration, like when Mattis uh, resigned over uh, an attempt to withdraw from Syria, you know, this is, a, this is an attempt to say whatever is also popular, according to the president, whether it's Trump or Obama, we have a responsibility to push the debate back towards the parameters we're more comfortable with. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it was often striking to me that Republicans in Congress were willing to push back on Trump's instincts to withdraw um, American military forces much more than they were willing to, to push back on his his racism, his his like very very his very dangerous authoritarian tendencies. Um, and I think it's it's interesting, you know, you you see this this tendency again and again in American foreign policy where you see that. Presidents tend to be um, more inclined to to uh, a policy of restraint than their than their advisors than the people around them. I mean, um, so this was true for, for obviously, as you say, with Trump and when he was restrained by people like Mattis and McMaster and others. It was true for Obama, who I think had a lot of was skeptical about the Afghan surge and was boxed in to some degree by his advisors, um, uh, was also initially, I think, skeptical of intervention in Libya. It's true going back to, you know, it was true for Jimmy Carter, who um, had to deal with a more hawkish division of Rizinski. It was true, I think, for, 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 for John F. Kennedy, who basically said after the Bay of Pigs, you know, I'm never going to let these people, I'm not going to try to stop these people from rolling me again because the CIA folks basically pushed me into this. So I, I think what's interesting is that I think presidents, uh, it, maybe not in all cases, but often tend to be more responsive um, to the aware of these dangers, partly because they have because they have to get worried about getting elected. So they have more of a sense of where the public is. Maybe they're also trying to balance these things against domestic impulses. You know, I think Obama said at a couple of points in these foreign policy debates, you know, I'm the only one here who's got responsibility also for trying to make sure that that we balance this with our domestic policy. At one point, I think he wanted to bring in 
Peter Orzag, the head of the Office of Management Budget. So someone would say, could bring into the conversation how much this is going to cost, you know? And um, one of the things that I still find really, I find disturbing so far about the Biden team and the way they're talking about foreign policy. And, you know, I think there's some smart and decent people, but they, I, I, I don't feel like, you know, when I think about the way they're talking about the defense budget, um, that there's a, that they're that they're seriously reckon, reckoning with the trade-offs that they should be reckoning with, given what's just happened in the United States domestically over the last four years, and the the, the ravages that we've faced from the the inadequacy of our social safety net. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, the Biden transition. Um, you know, I think. Uh, Joe Biden has a long record on foreign policy, and I think he's a kind of known quantity, and he's certainly in favor of the establishment that we've been scrutinizing in this conversation a little bit. However, I think the Democratic primary was one in which um, some kind of clearer lines on foreign policy were drawn to distinguish between candidates and sort of elucidate the, the, the nature of the party right now and where they're at on foreign policy. I think there's a lot of disagreement. And so Yes, it's true Biden won, but politically, I, I might have expected some nominations uh, that would signal uh, something of a change as, a, as opposed to these firm establishmentarians who are almost uh, determined, it seems, not to make those kinds of changes that seem popular. Yeah. So first of all, I think it's the, partly because there's not uh, really a, a pro- that much of a progressive or kind of restraint-oriented bench of people. I mean, you know, it, it, there are not a lot of institutions um, where that you can go to or people who have long experience in in jobs before. So they've got the kind of training. So I think that's that's part of it. Um, uh, I, I think um, it's also the case that Biden places a lot of premium on personal relationships, people that he feels personally close to and that. The prime, although he's getting a, there have been a, there's a little bit of pressure from from progressives. You know, there's been a little bit of there was a little bit of bit of criticism about, let's say, Michelle Flournoy in particular, but also about Tony Blinken and other people for you know maybe connections they had with military contractors. And you're now seeing a little bit of this about about Lloyd Austin. The stronger pressure has been for diversity, for for diversity, you know, diversity on race, gender, and and those that's very important. Uh, the the diversity of 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 race and gender, um, uh, but especially after the Trump administration, it would, it would be important under any circumstances. But I don't think there's as much attention to uh, to ideological diversity and to have um, people who can offer um, uh, a more iconoclastic or kind of outside perspective. And um, that, although I, I do think it is probably worth acknowledging, it is worth acknowledging that not all of the Biden folks are in exactly the same place that they were four years ago. I mean, I think if you look at Jake Sullivan's writings, you know, the incoming national security advisor, you do see him wrestling in a variety of ways with um, with the Trump phenomenon, what we should, what Democrats should learn from that, with um, some of the critiques of the blob. I mean, I don't think these people are. I don't think uh, it's a kind of unthinking absorption of all of this, but I still feel like, to my mind, the willingness to critique these kind of dominant notions that Obama kind of described, described as a blob, or Ben Rose described as a blob, that the, that the critiques have been, have been too limited. My experience listening to uh, official Washington of late is, is less that they uh, are considering fundamental policy changes in order to 
accommodate some of the criticisms and concerns that sort of uh, restraint-oriented retrenchers might uh, might speak out about. I think they are rhetorically sort of um, uh, accommodating, but it still seems to me that um, we we want to. Jake Sullivan is is emphasizing pushing back against China in the South China Sea, for example. Um, this reminds me, you know, going back a couple of years now, I think in 2018, you had an Atlantic article that talked about you at current U.S. strategy essentially tried to deny distant great powers a sphere of influence. And not only does this kind of ignore a good bit of history, which might suggest that spheres of influence can be stabilizing, it also contains an implicit suggestion that these great powers are m- more likely to kind of dutifully back down uh, in the face of a U.S. attempt at containment or threats of coercion rather than react partially and negatively to the U.S. imposition in their backyard. Yeah. I mean, I I worry that there is this line in the Democratic Party now to end the endless wars. But what I, I worry about that in a couple of ways. First of all, what I worry that really it means it may mean a lighter ground troop presence, but that we will respond to that by um, ramping up uh, or at least continue, if not ramping up um, uh, airstrikes um, uh, and and by selling a ton of weapons to 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 regimes that we like. This is kind of, you know, what's called the little bit like what the Nixon doctrine was in the 1970s. Nixon realized it was unsustainable to keep all these U.S. troops in Vietnam. So basically he, ma- he brought them out, but he massively escalated uh, bombing from the air. And basically he then tried to pump, send all these weapons to South Vietnam and, and Iran in the hopes that they could do what American troops couldn't do. And I, it was an interesting, there was an interesting report recently, which noted that you know, even though we've our troop levels in Afghanistan have been going down, the number of Afghans killed by us has been going up because of the increase in U.S. bombing. So you can say, well, it's good that we're withdrawing our troops from Somalia, perhaps. But if what we end up doing is basically just launching a lot more airstrikes from Kenya, I, that doesn't seem to me, me that, that's not ending the endless war. And the other point, which you were referencing, is that really the endless war is really just part of this reorientation towards the new Cold War with China, which may be even more exciting from the perspective of, you know, being a, a big justification for a massive defense budget. And, and I think your point is, is, is exactly right from my point of view. There's a lot of discussion about the need to restore U.S. deterrence in East Asia. This is something Michelle Florino and others have been talking all about a lot, which is basically means, you know, um, China's military has gotten fancier and high tech. We have to get all this high tech new stuff so we can basically restore deterrence. Well, what if we can't? I mean, first of all, the power ba- down, the balance between our two countries is shifting. Just the economic power balance is, 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 is shifting a certain direction. Secondly, a lot of these are places that matter more to China than, than they do to the United States. And China is also, and, and China is very, a very nationalistic place these days, right? Um, so what, what you at least, at least you, you gotta, you can't just assert that we're going to put all of, first of all, you're going to put all this money into high tech gizmos. That means that we're not, that means that we're not going to be able to respond to the fact that we can't keep Americans alive during a pandemic. So that bothers me a lot. Um, secondly, you have to convince me that the response that we that the deterrence will be successful, right? Rather than be provocative, what looks like deterrence to us may look to them extremely provocative. And you haven't also, again, this is part of American foreign policy being so elite driven. Have you really asked the American people how they feel about this? About whether how they feel about about um, the United States essentially 
telling the Chinese we're willing to go to war with them um, uh, in the South China Sea or over Taiwan. Um, first of all, I'm not necessarily, I don't think there's a, I'm not sure necessarily the United States could win those wars. Um, the consequences would be would be enormous. And we haven't really had a public conversation in which it seems to me it's hard to look at the behavior of the American people in recent decades and come to the conclusion that they're necessarily down for this, right? And and so I worry about, about this. I'm not saying that these, these decisions are easy. Um, I'm not saying that there are, um, uh, I, I mean, I, I think that China is a, is a really, really difficult challenge. And it, it's also a particularly difficult challenge because the United States has this military instrument um, and it doesn't really have an economic instrument anymore. I mean, one of the things that was really striking to me about going back and reading the Biden folks writing about China up until about a year ago, this fell off of the rhetoric about a year. But up until a year ago, they basically kind of say without TPP, without Trans-Pacific Partnership, with, that basically without us finding a way of building and of, of, of entrenching ourselves in the economic system in East Asia, the military stuff isn't going to isn't going to work. Right. But then the domestic politics, again, this is part of this disconnect, the domestic politics of that collapsed. And so now we don't really have that. And we face a China that is where the where, where the economic competition and the economic influence is more significant seems to be the military one. And we don't have an answer to that. So I, I worry a lot about the whole way in which this China conversation is emerging. I worry about the racism that it's producing, this uh, this unbelievable tweet from Marsha Blackburn, the ten Tennessee senator, just kind of baldly racist. It just made me feel like we're going to go through. I think another thing about it, so I'm going on too long. Another thing about foreign policy elites, and I was really struck, you know, you, you get a sense of this in the best and the brightest when you read the way that they talk about America, about Vietnam. There, there's not, I think, a, enough of a recognition of what this may unleash inside the United States. You know, you think it's, you know, th this, this cold, cold war, you know, this kind of, you know, we're going to compete. It's going to bring out the best in us. We're going to be, have to force our ace, a game. When the United States is in these in these kind of uh, situations where we start these very adversarial enemies, particularly with non-white, non-Christian countries, it brings out a lot of ugly stuff. Um, we're already seeing, I think, a lot of kind of McCarthyite stuff vis-a-vis -vis Chinese Americans on college campuses. You know, people who who were working at American and Chinese universities until up until yesterday, that was considered fine because every American university actually wanted a branch in China. And then all of a sudden now they're being investigated by the FBI because they didn't fill out some form four years ago that nobody ever told them was even important to fill out. I, I really worry about about the consequences of this. And I worry that in the in the foreign policy establishment conversation, there's not enough of the recognition of the dangers. With your distillation right there, it seems clear to me that we're a very fearful country. I think Americans uh, find things abroad to be very fearful of. And I think the foreign policy establishment, for lack of a better phrase, uh, in part because of their strategy, which is kind of all encompassing, uh, we see kind of um, terrible dangers and existential threats lurking behind every corner. Uh, why are we so terrified? Uh, we're remarkably safe as a country. We have uh, great moats in the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans and weak neighbors, uh, no other great power in our hemisphere, nuclear weapons, a giant military, a huge economy. Why, why this perception that we are so endangered? Well, I, I think that um, uh, what's happened is that, that the notion of safety and security for the American people has became, uh, particularly after the Cold War, associated with 
um, the, the extent of the American military footprint, that we became safer, the, the, the larger and greater our military footprint was. Um, and in order to um, kind of maintain the, in, the institutions of American this kind of, you know, what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex, we were therefore faced to, we, had, we kind of created these justifications for continuing to expand it. After a very brief and interesting debate that existed for just a moment in the early 1990s, where a lot, where a lot of people, including some very prominent conservatives like Gene Kirkpatrick and Irvin Crystal and others basically said, listen, we can substantially reduce our involvement now. But I would phrase it slightly differently. I mean, I think there are things that are for Americans to be terrified about. I mean, I think there are threats for America that Americans should be terrified about. I mean, the threat would be that we that 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 this that we see another pandemic, you know, a few years from now, and and our kids can't go to school for another year, and we lo- we're losing the equivalent of people of nine eleven and Pearl Harbor every day in the United States right now, right? But we pandemics pop- are what we're spending nearly a trillion dollars that's in national exactly security. Exactly right. I mean, that that's exactly right. I mean, the things that should scare the get out of us are the possibility that Miami will be underwater and that we'll have repeated pandemics that make life unlivable. The more Americans will have to go through this, will have to basically see, see their parents, you know, have their parents die and not even be able to be with them on their deathbeds, right? And yet that's not the budgetary priorities that we have as a country, not even close. And, not, and, it's, and the Democratic Party is not really proposing, it seems to me, the Biden administration, the level of recalibration, the level of kind of, 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 of transformation that would be necessary to take account of the of what we've learned, you know, about what really threatens America over the past few years. Uh, it seems to me uh, really just kind of tinkering at the margins. I mean, there, there I mean, I do think it's good that he appointed uh, John Kerry to in a very high profile position to put climate change at the center of the conversation. But when you look at resources, it seems to me it's still woefully, woefully out of whack. Yeah, it seems to me we're in trouble. We're spending a lot of money, uh, uh, really expensive to chase phantom threats that are essentially way down below in the list from what the threats that ordinary Americans actually face. We are, uh, as you have pointed out, uh, uh, less of a percentage of global GDP. We're just gonna have to uh, we're dealing with a rising China and so on, you know, wayward allies that don't necessarily want to link up with us in both Europe and Asia. So it seems to me change is coming. You know, it could be this gradual, difficult thing where America kicks and screams while it clutches its big foam finger and doesn't want to give up. And that would be uh, a drive towards insolvency. Or we can have a kind of political leader to say, OK, we've got to make some fundamental changes. And here they are. Uh, which do you think will uh, will befall us? I'm not that optimistic. Um, I, the Republican Party seems to me to be headed towards um, uh, a, a, a situation in which they make China the new Islamic terrorism, which is essentially the, the new foreign and not incidentally non-white, non-Christian threat that they can focus their nationalist antagonism on. Um, and uh, and so I don't see that leading to uh, the, the the kind of rethinking that we need to do. And I worry that um, first of all that the United States could be facing some really really tough reckonings. I mean, again, I don't know that we can defend Taiwan if the if the Chinese. I certainly hope they don't. 
Um, uh, uh, but if the Chinese make some move on Taiwan, and, and look, I'm not an expert on China, but you just look at what the United States did when the United States was in China's, you know, kind of equivalent historical position, where we really emerged given our growing economic power. And look at how the United States behaved between, let's say, 1898 and, you know, the first three or four, the first three decades of, of, uh, of the 20th century, right? I mean, I have this fantasy of like Xi Jinping going to, to Joe Biden and saying, listen, don't worry, we're going to be no more aggressive than you were uh, in your era uh, under Teddy Roosevelt when you were in our historic position. I mean, we gobbled up, you know, we, how many times did we, did we send our troops into the Caribbean and, and, and Central America, right? Um, this is their equivalent. So I really, really worry that we can't defend Taiwan. Um, and uh, um, that's one thing that really worries me. So I worry about war. Uh, and this is not the kind of war against, you know, ISIS or someplace. This is a, a great power war. Uh, I worry about that. I also worry about um, the end of the dollar as the, as the reserve currency of the world. The United States, I don't think most Americans understand how much we benefit. They don't think about how much we benefit from having this reserve currency. Nor do I think there is nearly enough attention on the way in which U.S. policy, U.S. sanctions policy in particular, has really been abusing that uh, privilege that we enjoy and basically giving other countries like China a real incentive to find alternatives. And that, I think, could be another really, really painful kind of wake up call for America in terms of the way the world is changing. And I worry that we don't have the kind of conversation right now that would allow us to to pivot to respond to these dangers. Peter Beinart, thanks for coming on. Thank you.